morning. I invite you to take your copy of the scripture and follow along with me as I read from Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 8 to chapter 5, verse 15. You can find this on page 825 in the Red Pew Bibles. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith and expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. 
who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they could go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Cornerstone. And uh, what a delight it is for me this morning to uh, seek to uh, open the scriptures uh, with you. If you're visiting with us, let me add my welcome uh, again to you. My guess would be is that uh, you didn't come here um, uh, expecting to talk about circumcision and emasculation and things like that, but welcome here anyway. Um, this passage we is, uh, is the next uh, passage in the book of Galatians that we as a church family have been walking through uh, since Easter this spring. And, uh, and we, we've kind of lumped this large, uh, long section together because it's a section all about freedom. It's about freedom, and so I'm not going to get into all, all the nitty-gritties uh, this morning of this passage, but um, want to give an overview because I, Paul here is really um, summarizing uh, all that he's taught up until this point and saying, as a result of everything that I've taught, the result of that all is freedom, and I want you to live in that freedom, and he's going to then go on in the rest of this book, describe what a life of freedom looks like. And Matt's going to get us going next week as he talks about the fruit of the Spirit and a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this morning we're going to dig overview. How does this passage summarize what Paul has said before? And how does this freedom then get worked out in our lives? Two things I believe that we all want deep down. Two deep desires that each one of us have. First desire is that we want to be good. We want to be good people. We, uh, we want to do what's right. We want to be blameless in the way that we live. We hate being wrong. We hate when we're exposed um, as doing wrong, right? We all want to, uh, to be good, right? The movies we watch, the movies we watch, right? They're either someone trying to be good or someone trying to be great, but when we watch the, the, the transformation movies, right, the stories of someone being transformed from, into someone who's good, you know, none of us are saying, oh, I kind of prefer the old one. Like, none of us are watching a Christmas, t- or like the Scrooge movie, right, and saying, I, I kind of prefer the old Scrooge. I kind of identify more with him. I, that's, what I, I, that's what I aspire to, right? No, we want to be good. We want to be thought of as a good person. And so we, we not only want to be good, we also want to be great. We also want our lives to be significant. We want to feel important. We want to feel like our lives matter, that we matter, that we're not insignificant, that we're not a blip 
in the, in the scope of time, that I'm, I matter, that I'm loved, and that someone who is important loves me. We have these desires that we want to be good and we want to be great. But deep down, and the default mode of our heart is to try to go and achieve this. The default mode of our hearts is to try to achieve this through our self-reliant performance. That, we, that we're going to go out and prove ourselves through our moral efforts that we're good. And we're going to go out and prove ourselves through our excellence and exploits that we're significant, that we're good enough, that we measure up, that we're great. And the, what we've been seeing as we've been walking through this letter that Paul writes to the churches that he planted in Galatia is that he's telling us that to live in reliance on the self-reliant performance by redeeming ourselves, by proving ourselves, is slavery. It's bondage. We end up like Sisyphus. So I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Sisyphus in Greek mythology. There's a little picture there of uh, Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a king who was, um, who was sentenced to a life of pushing a boulder up a hill, a steep hill, only to get near the top and for it to roll back down for all eternity. He's striving and he's pushing this boulder up a hill, but he can never quite get to the top and it rolls back down and he has to start all over. That this is what it's like to redeem ourselves through our moral efforts. This is what it's like to, to try to prove ourselves through our excellence and exploits, that we're pushing a boulder up a hill of our own goodness, of our own greatness, only to fail. We never quite achieve. We keep doing wrong. We keep having wrong thoughts. We keep having impure motives. We have a heart that's full of greed or envy or jealousy or pride or lust. And we fail to be great. We embarrass ourselves by failing to achieve, whether that be in our careers, whether that be uh, uh, an image of beauty that we aspire to, whether that be success or wealth, or whether we disappoint someone. Maybe we feel like a failure as a parent or as a son or a daughter. And Galatians is saying that those who are trapped in this slavery, the gospel brings liberation. The gospel brings freedom to set you free. And Paul wants the Galatians to be free from the Sisyphus-like existence of pushing a, a boulder up the hill of your own goodness and your own greatness. And he's reminded us in this, in this letter that the gospel brings two things. The gospel brings, is a gift, justification. Justification. That one of the gifts of the gospel is justification, that which says that we're, he, he frees us by redeeming us from our moral efforts in justification. That justification means that um, he declares us right with him. He declares us righteous. That we're now in right standing. He treats us just as if I never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed and done right and good and things that are beautiful and true. We're declared right before the one who really matters, just as if we never sinned. And he clothes us, Paul says, he clothes us with his own righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. You see, the cross of Jesus reveals the futility of trying to achieve your own goodness. It's pushing a boulder to the top of a hill, but it'll always roll back down. God has declared there's no one righteous, no, not one. Jesus said no one is good, but God alone. The cross is God's exclamation point that we're not good enough, but it's liberating. It's liberating that you can be forgiven and declared blameless. You can be blameless, not because of the hill that you climbed, but because of the hill that Jesus climbed for you. He was blamed so that you could be blameless. 
And this deep longing in your heart to be good could actually come true and be declared so. Listen, to, look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. It says, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law because we can't, we don't. As was promised in the writings of Moses, the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. His record counts for you. We we receive justification. The gospel says the gift of God is justification. You're declared right with God. You're good. And secondly, the gospel also gives this gift of adoption. Josh unpacked that for us last week so beautifully. Adoption. This, the justification answers this need to be blameless, this need to be good. Adoption meets this need that we need to have to be beloved, to be significant. He, the, uh, the gospel gives us a new identif- identity of unsurpassed significance, that you matter. He calls you his beloved You see, justification is not just cold legal fiction. It's the truth that God brings you into his family. He adopts you as a son. He makes you a son or a daughter. Listen again to chapter 4, verse 4 to 7, which we considered last week. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. And because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you an heir. You gain not only the righteousness of Jesus, but you gain the status of Jesus as a son, as a daughter, as an adopted child of God. And so do you realize that if you're in Jesus Christ today, the Father loves you like he loves Jesus? And that he doesn't have favorites in his family that he loves you with the same passion as he loves Jesus, that he loves you with the same determination as he loves Jesus, he loves you with the same devotion, the same commitment, the same affection. Do you believe that today? If that if you're in Jesus, the Father loves you right now just as you are. Not a future version of yourself, not a, not a, a, a future version where you're, not, you're a little bit less messed up. He loves you like that today. He loves you like that today. You're his beloved, and he's given you his Holy Spirit, the spirit of his own son, so you can cry out, Abba, Dad, Father. The passion of the Holy Spirit is to reveal to you over and over again and deeper and deeper that you are beloved of God, that you're adopted, that you're madly loved by the Father, that in Jesus you're beloved of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, you are an ingredient in the divine happiness. You're an ingredient in the divine happiness. He delights in you. Oh, when that dawns on you, that's all the greatness you'll ever need. That's all the significance you'll ever need. How do you top that, that the God of the universe says to you, you are my beloved child? Oh, well, I got a promotion at work. Like, how does that even compare? How does it compare 
You can stop trying to prove yourself and to everyone else how much you matter, how great you are, because God has called you his. He's not ashamed to be your father. You're the object of his love and his delight. What more could be said of you? How more, what more significance could you desire? Could that be driven into our hearts? When the opinion of the one who matters most matters most to you, then you're free. Then you're free. When the opinion of the one who matters most matters the most to you, that sets you free. You can live your life in the court of human opinion, but there's a court that trumps all other lower courts. And then when the verdict of that court rings in your heart that you're blameless and beloved, that you're good and you're great, those lower courts lose their power. Over the long weekend, uh, we watched a, a movie with our kids. Um, it's an old one, or an older one, Cool Runnings. You remember that? The story of the Jamaican bobsled team, right? They, uh, uh, about a year before the Calgary Olympics in 1988, these Jamaicans decided that because they fell in a race in the 100-meter sprints and they didn't qualify for the Summer Olympics, they said, well, we're fast, so let's do the bobsled instead. And, um, and in that movie, John Candy plays the coach. Right? John Candy is a disgraced former bobsled champion. He's won two gold medals, but back 25 years earlier, he'd been caught cheating, that he had put extra weights in the sled, and so he was caught cheating. And, and one of the climactic moments of Cool Runnings, um, the, uh, the, 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 lead, the main character, the leader of the, uh, of the bobsled team, asks John Candy, he says, you know, why did you do it? Why did you quit? Why did you cheat? And John Candy says, I made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning. And the, the athlete says to him, he says, but you had it all. You had two gold medals. You had it all. And John Candy says, if you're not enough without a gold medal, you'll never be enough with it. And the athlete desperately looks into his eyes and he says, how will I know if I'm enough? How will I know if I'm enough? And the rest of the story is a playing out of how can I know if I'm enough? How do you know if you're enough? How do you know if your life matters? How do you know if you're significant? For some of us in this room, most of our days are behind us. And you're looking back on most of your days. Towards the end of your life, the great temptation of your life is to look back and live enslaved to an achievement idol, and lament all of the things you didn't accomplish. And you let that become the defining verdict over your life. All of the things that you failed at, all of the things that you didn't accomplish, all of the things that didn't go the way that you wanted them to go. Others of us in this room think that we have most of our days ahead of us. And we can live enslaved to an achievement idol because you have the burden of achieving something great. You've got to live up to your father's reputation. I've got to build a new company. I've got, to, I've got to make it in this world. I've got to make a name for myself. God puts desires, yes, in our hearts to achieve some things, but not to live under the burden of them as a crushing identity for us. You see, we can be free from enslavement to achievement idol only when the opinion of the one who matters most matters most to us, that in Jesus you're blameless, in Jesus you're beloved, you're beloved, 
And all this freedom is ours, Galatians has been telling us, is by faith. Apart from what we earn, apart from what we achieve. Remember the context, this church and the churches in Galatia, these believers have been infiltrated by false teachers who were saying that they needed to become functionally Jewish. That, yes, faith in Jesus is important, but it's not enough. That Jesus hasn't accomplished everything to make you right with God. You also need to follow the law. You also need to become functionally Jewish. You need to um, obey the dietary laws. You need to be circumcised. That Jesus... And, and, and Paul, Jesus isn't quite enough. You need Jesus plus something. And Paul's saying, no, it's Jesus plus nothing. If you, if you add anything to Jesus, you rob him of his glory and of his power. Don't waste your life, Paul says, pushing a boulder of your own goodness and greatness up a hill only to watch it roll down again. Paul's saying Jesus secures justification for us. Jesus secures adoption for us. In chapter 5, verse Two and three, which Sarah read this morning. Mark my words, Paul says. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to everyone who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. Paul's saying it's all grace or it's all law, and you can't mingle the two. It's either your hill that you climb or the hill that Jesus has climbed for you. Now, again, most of us in this room are not struggling with the question over whether or not we need to be circumcised. We're not struggling over the question of whether or not we're allowed to eat bacon. Praise be to God. <laughs> but we're tempted to tr- we are tempted to trust in other things to make us feel blameless or to make us feel beloved. We are tempted to, to rest in, to trust in, to rely upon our own achievements in order for us to feel right with God, in order for us to feel uh, loved by God. Look at my record this week, God. Told the truth all the time. Came here in church. Even prayed. Read my Bible. Didn't commit any of the big sins. You must love me today. Or, wow, I don't feel like I can pray. I really messed up this week. I I didn't read my Bible at all this week. I've skipped church four times in the last six weeks. How does God feel about me? Do I have confidence to come before him? Paul doesn't want us to fall away to slavery, but to walk in grace. Walk in grace. And he's got a play on words in in this text. It's actually quite funny. He's like, He says, if you trust in it, you're severed from Christ. If you trust in circumcision, you're severed from Christ. What's really getting cut off is your relationship with Jesus. He says, and I wish those who are troubling you, I wish those who are laying these burdens on you would just go the whole way and cut it all off. But Paul Paul knows that there's a question that that comes when when we believe in this radical grace, that it's all of grace, There's always a question that follows right behind it. What kind of life will this faith in Jesus produce? What does a justified adopted life look like? I want us to see two things that Paul points out. What does this life look like? The first thing, chapter 5, verse 5. 
By faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Paul's saying a, a life, the life that faith in Jesus alone and grace alone through Christ alone produces is a faith that waits with hope. A faith that waits with hope. We're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're hoping for righteousness. But you say, well, didn't Paul say that we've already been given the gift of righteousness? That in justification we're declared righteous before God fully, completely? That we have this blameless standing? Yes. Justification means that we're declared right. We're fully righteous. We're declared right before God. And yet, as we've seen, we're not fully practicing righteousness yet. The day is coming where we will be saved from the presence of sin in our lives and the power of sin in our lives, but that's not this day. There is coming a day when we will be glorified. We will be made like Jesus, but that is not this day. That we live in the in-between justification and glorification. We live in what the theologians call sanctification, where we are becoming what we already are, that he's declared us righteous, we are righteous, and now we're in this process of becoming righteous, where our lives begin to line up with the way that God would intend for us to live, where we are declared holy, and yet we're becoming holy. I'm not what I used to be, but I'm, and I'm not what I'm going to be. I'm in process. I'm becoming what I already am. I'm in process. Are you in process? I'm in process. I still sin. I still sin. But we eagerly wait to be done with the struggle. But here's the truth. There's freedom in admitting this. There's freedom in admitting that you're in process. There's freedom in admitting that you don't have it all together yet. I'm in process. And I think there's some people in the room who have a hard time admitting this. You feel like you have to put on the facade of being a perfect parent, of being a perfect Christian, of being a perfect friend. And so we spend an inordinate amount of time on image management, of reputation management. We can't handle being wrong, so we make excuses. We can't handle failing, so we shift blame. And it's all to establish our own righteousness. It's right reputation management. I can't admit the real issues that I have. That I, I can't admit that I need the grace and the power of Jesus to free me from my sin in the practice of my sin. And I need the family of God to come alongside me and help. Now, sure, yeah, all of us in this room will in generality say, yeah, 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 I'm still a sinner. But who do you confess the specifics of your sin to? Who do you confess the specifics of your sin? Are you free to admit the specifics? And not just say, hey, I, yeah, I, I sin, but to say, I'm proud. I am greedy. I'm full of lust. The only way to kill slavery of reputation management is to go to the cross. Milton Vincent, look at this quote. 
Milton Vincent, in this great little book called The Gospel Primer, says, The cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and see and am seen by others under the light of that cross, I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill, which is the place where Jesus died. And my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. With the worst facts about me thus exposed to the view of others, I find myself feeling that I truly have nothing left to hide. The cross has outed us all. And so we can stop pretending that the worst, we can stop pretending that we have it together. The worst things that could ever be said about you were said at the cross. Milton Vincent continues. He says, the, the more exposed I see that I am by the cross, the more I find myself opening up to others about ongoing issues of sin in my life. Why would anyone be shocked to hear my struggles with past and present sin when the cross has already told that I'm a desperately sinful person? And the more open I am in confessing my sins to fellow Christians, the more I enjoy the healing of the Lord in response to their grace-filled counsel and prayers. You won't overcome your sins till you get them in the open with trusted friends. And say, I need to out myself because the cross has already outed me. I don't have it together and I need your help in this battle. I know, see, Paul's saying we're, in, we're all in between. We're eagerly waiting in hope for righteousness. We're waiting to be made right in our practice. We're waiting to be saved from the presence of sin in our lives. But we're not there yet. We're being saved. We will be saved. When you really get the gospel, when you sin, you won't run from God, you'll run to him. When you sin, you won't hide from others, you'll invite them in and say, would you do war with me? Would you pray with me? And so we have this hope. We have this hope that he will change us. And we know that this process is a community project so we can stop pretending. Second thing this life looks like, faith that not only that waits with hope, but faith that works with love. You see, the fear of the false teachers was, well, if we just preach grace, then people are going to start sinning like crazy. If you preach grace only, they're going to just live lives of debauchery. We need the law to keep them in line. You see, Paul's saying, no, faith in Jesus reveals itself through our works. We receive the Holy Spirit who then works in our lives. He continues verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. So the mark of spiritual maturity, the mark of spiritual maturity is how much you donate to, donate to the church. The mark of spiritual maturity is how much time you spend in prayer. The, spark, the mark of spiritual maturity is how often you attend. No, the mark of spiritual maturity is love. Love. You see, we can so easily have a form of holiness that is external only. External only. And then we will despise the thing, people who don't do the things we do. Them. We'll judge, we'll criticize. But love, friends, means that we won't measure by externals. 
because that's not how we measure our own maturity. We measure our maturity by our love. By our love. You see, in justification, God frees us to confess our sins, to eagerly wait and hope for righteousness. And in adoption, he frees us to love other people because we have the love of the Father. You see, we have these deep longings in our hearts to be good, to be great. And those deep longings are found only, found in their fulfillment only in Jesus. That in justification, he's made us right. He's made us good. He's declared us so and is making us so. And in adoption, he says, we're, we're not only blameless, you're not only justified, you're also <coughs> beloved. You're also the beloved of God. And so, friends, you're going to live in one of two ways. You're going to live either with identity achieved or identity received. And identity achieved, you, you need to prove yourself. And you'll demand from others. You'll have crushing expectations on yourself and on other people. And you'll live in slavery. See, because if, if your identity is achieved by what you've done through your moral performance, your moral efforts, or your excellence and exploits, you're going to live in slavery to fear that you'll fail, that the boulder is going to fall down the hill. Because if it rests in your performance, it's very tenuous at best. But identity received, receiving the declaration of justified, of innocent, of righteous, of holy, of pure. Receiving the adoption as sons and daughters of the king. And friends, that identity is received. It's not achieved. It's, it's based not on what we've done, but on what Jesus has done. And what Jesus has done will never change. And so there's great security. And so we can stop crushing others and ourselves. We can stop pushing the, our own boulders up the hill and wondering why all the other slackers around us aren't as high as we are. And it's all received by faith. And not once, it's every day to wake up and say, this is who I am in Jesus. I am blameless in Jesus. I'm beloved by the Father in Jesus. You pray with me. Father in heaven, would you set us free by good news today that we, have, we can be free from pretending that we're good, free from trying to prove ourselves that we're great, but Lord, we can simply receive your word over us that we're blameless and beloved in Christ. So it set us free, free to live with joy, free to serve and love one another, that we'd stop biting each other's heads off because their boulder isn't as high as ours, but help us to live in faith that Jesus has climbed the hill for us so that we would be free to love you and love one another. For I pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This is our connection time. You have an opportunity to encourage.